I'm pretty sure we've, we've all maybe come across this thought or, or a similar one to it. The Word of God should comfort us when we're troubled and trouble us when we're comfortable. Well, tonight, as, as we continue our journey with Jesus, uh, which we have been doing for a number of weeks through Luke's Gospel, but as we continue our journey with Jesus, which, as we're about to find out, is now specifically headed and bound for Jerusalem, there are, there are definite aspects of what Jesus says and what Jesus teaches that are uncomfortable and leave us slightly or maybe even very uh, unsettled. I went to the, uh, to the Lyric on Wednesday night to, or Thursday night to see the man Jesus uh, starring Simon Callow. And one of the, the things that I was struck by was, was just how radical and how disturbing some of the teaching and the sayings of Jesus actually were that whenever you hear them in a kind of different setting or in a fresh context, they, they really do remind you how extreme Jesus sounded then and actually now. And so if you have a Bible, could I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 9? It's page 1040, or at least the bit we're going to be reading is, uh, in the Red Pew Bibles. And we're going to pick the story up just a little after the transfiguration, which we looked at together last week. And as we often do here at Windsor, and I hope it's okay, I would like us to stand for the public reading of God's uncomfortable word. So let's stand together. Just to give you a little bit of context before we start reading... We're going to be reading from verse 43, by the way. But Jesus has come down the mountain and he finds himself faced by a stubborn, shrieking demon. From a mountaintop experience to earth with a bump, so to speak. From a spiritual high to the harsh realities of life in a fallen world. That kind of is often the way it works. And then Jesus miraculously heals the boy. And everyone, to quote the start of verse 43, is amazed. Have a look at it there. Amazed at the greatness of God. So let's begin the second half, verse 43. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and made him stand beside him. And then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all, he's the greatest. Master said, John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. For whoever is not against you is for you. 
As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. And they went to another village. And as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus replied. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Take a seat. If you you look up at verse 33, and we looked at this three weeks ago, Jesus expressed the radical demands of discipleship. He put it like this, if anyone would come after me, if anyone wants to be my disciple, then they've got to deny themselves, pick up their cross daily, and follow me. And so what you discern very quickly is that this this is a, a serious issue. Following Jesus is demanding. And here in these verses that we have just read, and as a result of what happened, we're given further insights into what exactly is the nature of discipleship, what the cost is in following Jesus, of what it means and what is involved. And quite honestly, lots of us at face value find it pretty unsettling, especially that last little section, verses 57 to 62. Very hard to kind of get your head around those verses. But back in verse 44... As everyone was, was marveling at just how amazing God is, Jesus turned around to his disciples. As everyone was amazed at what he had just done in healing that boy, Jesus turns around and he predicts his death for a second time. Or at least he predicts the fact that he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be handed over to men. He'd already done that if you look up in verse 22. And here's another reference to the fact that he's going to head For suffering and rejection and death and resurrection. But as it says in verse 45, the disciples had had really no clue what Jesus was talking about. But at the very least, at the very least, even though they had no idea what Jesus was talking about, at the very least, they must have known that what he was saying was serious. That, That what he was saying was really important, that it was solemn. And therefore, how they react... Or what they start talking about is bizarre. It seems so wrong, so out of place, so out of order. If anything, it seems insensitive. And it just shows how human they were. How so absolutely ordinary. How self-obsessed they still were. And, And I find that quite encouraging. Because what do the disciples start doing? They start arguing about status. Who's going to be the greatest? And Jesus has just said to them, I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of men. And their response, who's the greatest? 
it seems that the deadly sin of pride is alive and well. Because instead of thinking of others, and specifically their friend and their master Jesus, they're consumed by me. And so they start debating their ranking. Who's the best? Who's the favorite? If it wasn't so tragic, it would actually be laughable. The problem is, verse 47, and John has kind of alluded to this, Jesus knows their thoughts. See, nothing's hidden. There are no secrets. Jesus knows what we're thinking right this moment. Can't conceal anything. Even our messed up thoughts are not hidden from the searching eyes and ears of God. And so Jesus, in typical Jesus fashion, uses this moment to teach them a valuable life and discipleship lesson. He says, listen, there's no place for pride. And that greatness, true greatness, is found in a whole different attitude of mind and heart of humility. And so Jesus takes this little child and gets him to stand right beside him, right in front of, right in full view of the disciples. Jesus takes someone who had next to or absolutely no status in the ancient world. Someone who was often overlooked or looked through. And makes the point that everyone, everyone, even the lowest on the so-called ladder, are important, significant, and great. And that whenever you receive, whenever you welcome, a little child is not only welcoming him, but is also welcoming the one who sent him. Pride. Thinking you're any better than someone else has no place in the kingdom of God. The kingdom that Jesus came to establish and the kingdom that these disciples were meant to be going to proclaim and to enable to come on earth as it is in heaven. Greatness, you see, in that kingdom is not found in elitism. It's not found in comparisons. I'm better than him or her or them. But it's found in an attitude. That's where true greatness is found. An attitude of humility. That virtue that confronts the vice of pride head on. The attitude that Paul says was in Christ Jesus and that we should have. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ. That is the attitude that Christian disciples are called to embrace and express in their day to day lives humility if you want to be great says Jesus end of verse 48 it's the one who's least among you is the greatest it's an upside down kingdom it's this alternative path of discipleship it's the path of humility we all know this quote for those who would learn God's ways, humility is the first thing, humility is the second thing, and humility is the third thing. Or as the Apostle Paul writes to Christians in a local church and beyond, clothe yourselves with humility. You've got to put it on. You've got to wear it. That's a choice. I choose what I wear today. Or as Jesus himself said on another occasion in about five chapters time actually, Those who humble themselves will be exalted. 
So what we need to work out and what we need to deal with is how do you go about humbling yourself? Because it's those who do who are exalted. The disciples had allowed at the most inappropriate moment in time the deadly sin of pride to raise its ugly head and Jesus was all over it in an incident. And using a live illustration and some incredibly heart-searching words, he challenges their attitude. And he says, listen, here's what true discipleship looks like. It's not about status. It's not about power. It's not about who's the greatest. It's not about rank. It's about the least among you. And whatever else we kind of take away from, from what we're looking at this evening, let me encourage and remind those of us who are Christians to beware of the danger of pride. And to pursue humility. And that's a lifelong process. I know it is. And in verses 49 and 50. It kind of doesn't seem to fit. Verses 49 and 50 with the flow. And yet I actually see this as another example of pride. That Jesus had to address before moving on. You see John isn't happy that someone else. And we have no idea who that someone else is. But someone else is driving out demons in Jesus' name. And the problem for John is. This person, whoever this person was, is not one of them. Now, it could be that John's jealous or he's envious. I actually reckon he's just too proud to accept that someone else has been able to do what the rest of the disciples couldn't do. Because have a look up at verse 40, where... The dad says to Jesus, I begged your disciples to drive this demon out of my son, but they couldn't do it. And for me, this is a pride issue here for John. So John wants Jesus to put a stop to this. But John's attitude is not good. If I can't do it, if we can't do it, then no one else should be able to. Especially if they're not one of us. And so rather than rejoice in the success of others or give thanks that someone has been set free from demon possession, John is more interested in himself and in his and their reputation. And again, Jesus is having none of it. And so Jesus rather directly says to him, do not stop him, John, for whoever is not against you is for you. Now, whatever else that means, and I know whole sermons have been preached on it, but whatever else it means, that comment, that challenge confronts pride and powerfully reminds us, everything, uh, reminds everyone that ministry, Christian ministry, kingdom ministry is a cooperative venture and is not restricted to some exclusive in crowd. That if someone is speaking in Jesus'